This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. And online at SBNationLive.com. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Welcome to the Halloween edition of the Talk of Fame Network, where Ron is, let's see, dressed up this week as like the Grand Marshal of the Red Sox Victory Parade. Congratulations, Ron. And Goose looks like he's going as, uh, what is that, Sparty, the Michigan State mascot? What do you got there, Goose? Slow down. I need to spend some serious time in the gym to go as Sparty. It's been 40 <laughs> years since I could pass the Sparty's double. <laughs> You going to bring that band with you when you go out, Goose? Not sure. The boys in the band are still celebrating that big win over Purdue with our backup quarterback last week. So <laughs> that I'll see was if big. I can get him down here to Texas for Halloween and show the Big 12 what a real marching band looks like. Well, uh, speaking of marching bands and victories, Ron, how was that victory parade? I thought there was supposed to be a curse for the Red Sox. And you know something? I liked it better when there was one. Well, I'll tell you, curses are welcome uh, only after they've ended, which ours clearly has. Then we look back nostalgically at 86 years of utter suffering, which most of which I lived through, as you know. Last <laughs> for me, I say curses when we don't win, which in Boston these days is not often. 11 championships in the past 18 years and counting. Bring on the parade and the duck boats. Ours, we. Are you a member of that team, Ron? You're on the I team. Am You're on the now, baby. I'm on the team. I'm on the squad. On the bandwagon. Hey, Goose, any curses on the Spartans? No curses ever for Spartans, only blessings. Oh, wow. Well, no curses here either, at least not yet. But we have another two hours, so who knows? That's yeah, early. Knows what's gonna yeah, it's early. What I do know is that we have Hall of Famer Art Shell in the house to talk about interim coaches. Not only was one, but he was a successful one, also a successful head coach. We also have former Indianapolis pass rusher Robert Mathis with us, as well as our good friend and Hall of Fame voter Ira Kaufman to give us his take on the best Tampa Bay Buccaneers not in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Ronnie, do um, you think Ira's going to get dressed up for Halloween this week? Yeah, I think he is. I think he's going to go as an an Amish rifle. (laughs) Locked and loaded. Locked and loaded. Well, how about your son, Jack? What's he going as? What's he going to do? Jack is going as a wild card, who he tells me is a skin on Fortnite. I have no idea what that means, but he then told me that's, you know, my dad is like a cosmetic item. And I went, huh? So he's going as a cosmetic item, I guess. (laughs) Fortnite, is that me waiting for two weeks? I don't know. What the heck is that? My wife's, my, my daughter's got it too. I have no idea what it is. <laughs> well, we are just going here, going as in going, going, gone to a break. This is the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Hey, just a reminder, guys, um, you've got to turn your clocks back. This uh, uh, that's right. Uh, we, we're going to lose daylight savings time, so which means we go back, well, I guess, one hour on Sunday. And I don't know about you, but I don't like it, especially here in the Northeast. And Ron, uh, <laughs> that side tells me all I need to know. I mean, uh, when you turn on the lights, you know, around 4.30 in the afternoon, it's bad. I mean, it's, it's just awful. a reminder. Of what's next? Cold, gray, ugh. Yuck. Exactly. Look, I live often in the dark, especially with a 12 year old son. <laughs> yeah. uh, but that's my natural state, but I hate it. Uh, so I just think it's. Uh you and I need to move to Arizona, Hawaii, or Puerto Rico, where they oh, forgot um, this whole thing. I'll take all of them. Maybe throw in Tahiti. Hey, Gooseman, uh, you're a man who knows how to make decisions. You make a lot of them for us. What do you think? Daylight savings time all year? Or keep it as it is? Uh, I'd, I'd say uh, keep it as it is. You know, it's. Hard for me to say. It's it, it's always sunshine here in the great state of Texas. 
<laughs> Rub it in a little bit. That's Rub right. it that's, in a little bit. That's, that's, that's Rick Gosselin, member of the Chamber of Commerce. <laughs> um, exactly. Anyway, uh, turn back the clocks this Sunday, which home of course of we do. Dallas, home of Clayton Kershaw, I think. We go a home <laughs> run. Oh, thanks. There we go. There's a home run by uh, Mookie Betts, and there's Ron, the homer from Mookie exactly. Betts. Exactly. Um, I have my team. But in, anyway, do us a favor. Turn your clocks back on Sunday. And you know what? We do that a lot here. Turn the clocks back on the Talk of Fame Network. In fact, we're going to turn them back in the next hour when we talk to former Raiders great Art Shell and former Indianapolis pass rusher Robert Mathis and Gooseman. Last question for you. Move on from this. What's the best part of going to Standard Time? The extra hour of sleep this Sunday. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, Ron, what's the worst? Uh, dark before dinner. There you go. Yeah, well, it's, it, it's dark here always before dinner. December like um, 20th, or whatever that I day know. is, the longest oh, day. Or 21st, day yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's like living Bad. in Antarctica. Well, that leads us to a perfect segue on this Halloween week, which is the best and worst costumes out there in the NFL. Now, when I think of Frightful, I immediately think of Minnesota defensive lineman, a Hall of Famer. You guys know what I'm talking about. John Randall, who used to paint his face for every game. You know, I, I think teammate Chris Hovan did it, too. Um, and scare opposing quarterbacks and linemen. And Goose, not to mention, I think most people out there in TV land. I think the scariest sight for any quarterback, though, would be Lawrence Taylor lining up on the left or Reggie White lining up on the right. I think that would scare the bejesus out yeah. of any Yeah, well, <laughs> all right. Did Drew Bledsoe, um, I know that. Yeah, I did every <laughs> quarterback. Um, but, of course, um, nothing to what uh, Randall did um, or looked like or Hovan looked like uh, did. Uh, that compared to what you see in the stands with fans routinely, it looks like painting their faces today, their bodies, their cars, their kids, you name it. Um, all in the interest, Ron, of supporting their teams. And, uh, Ron, I imagine, just a guess here, wild guess, you probably see some real beauties in Foxborough. Yes, uh, you do. Any particular favorites? Any, any well, favorites there? Uh, well, when Mosey Tatupa was playing, uh, they had a section in the end zone uh, called Mosey's Mooses. And there was a guy who would come <laughs> with a moose head. <laughs> <laughs> Every game with his moose head on his head. And I said to myself, you know, that takes a lot of effort. Bring that moose head and <laughs> you look like an idiot for four hours. Okay. But that was that was right up there. Although, yeah, as you guys know, I spent a lot of years with the Raiders and there was like. Yeah, well, there you go. But you wouldn't be able to get that moose head past security today. Not today. No, you couldn't even get no. an antler. <laughs> That's right. How about Dallas Goose, man? I mean, you must see some, something like rowdy on the sidelines, maybe something a little bit different. No, just all the folks masquerading as champions wearing their Stalock jerseys. <laughs> okay, well, let's let's get to the best and worst. And, Goose, I'll start with you. Uh, what's the worst outfit, painted face, tattoo, I don't care, that you've seen on an NFL player that is, well, you know, trick-or-treat worthy? Ryan Switzer was a Cowboy draft pick who now plays for the Steelers. He had the word believe tattooed to the inside of his lower lip. Oh, are you serious? Oh, you, oh my God! That's oh my God! That's got to be painful. How did he see it? <laughs> yeah. he pull his tongue out. Pull Look his lip. Oh. oh my God! Okay, okay, Ron. I'll ask wow. you the worst. The, the, you, yeah, try topping that, Ron. But uh, well, you know what? Uh, uh, you uh, have uh, in the past. Try I, it. I think I'm not going to be able to top that one. But I would have to say uh, the tatted body of Aaron Hernandez long before Ooh. he was what Ooh. he was. I mean, he looked like he'd been held hostage in an inking room for the, you know for like ten years. It was there was not like an inch of that guy's body didn't have some sort of uh, weird tats. It was. I mean, he was scaring players. 
Yeah. Andre Tippett's the only guy I wasn't afraid of because Tippett was not afraid of anybody. He'd just do that black belt thing, you know, and kill you. But he was terrifying. But, you know, the interesting thing, guys, you, you, you talk to, I, I guess, I mean, I don't like this term, but millennials are young people today. And they're impervious to it because I see it and I go, oh, my God. And uh, my nephew once said, I don't even notice it anymore. I really don't notice it. Right. I mean, yeah, they all got it. Yeah. <laughs> I do. Um, okay. Uh, what's the best? And, and, and remember, uh, now, Ron, I'll start with you here. It can be anywhere, and this is especially for you, Ron. It can be anywhere or anything associated with the NFL, fans, teams, players, owners, GMs, mascots, <laughs> or Raiderettes. Yeah, this is a, You name it. You name it. Absolutely the best NFL Halloween costume and arrival in the history of sports, not just the NFL. Ted Hendricks riding to practice on Halloween on a white steed in a full cape and the whole nine yards and a massive pumpkin carved out on his head with the Raider logos carved in each side of this huge <laughs> pumpkin. And he, he galloped. He didn't walk. He galloped out of the practice field by an old dump in Alameda where they used to practice. Roars up, pulls back on the reins. The horse stops. Madden's got his arms full, and Madden looks at him and goes... Hey, Ted, lose the horse. (laughs) Goose, top that. (laughs) I'm going to take you back to tattoos. Matt Burke showed up the combine with a shield of Harvard tattooed to his thigh. (laughs) I'll tell you, there aren't many of those in the NFL. Secondly, if I graduated from Harvard, I'd have tattooed it on my chest. (laughs) I would have tattooed it on my lower lip, but that other guy's, I can see it like, wow. Yeah, well, guys, just get worse. Dartmouth tattooed them a couple weeks ago. Well, Rick, this week wrote about a guy who terrified a lot of defensive coordinators, and not just on Halloween. That's former running back Billy Sims, who we pushed for the hall this week on our website, talkofhamnetwork.com. And Gooseman, tell us why. Yeah, the Detroit Lions used a high first-round draft pick on a Heisman Trophy winner from the state of Oklahoma, and Barry Sanders rewarded them with a Hall of Fame career. By all rights, Sanders should have been the second such running back drafted by the Lions with that same profile with a bust in Canton. All that Sanders achieved in his career was there for the taking for Billy Sims. The two Heisman Trophy winners from the state of Oklahoma, Sanders is from Oklahoma State, Sims, Oklahoma, even wore the same jersey number 20 with the Lions. Detroit claimed Sims with the first overall selection of the 1980 draft. Sanders went third overall in 1989. Sanders was the NFL Rookie of the Year. So was Sims. Sims rushed for 1,300 yards and 13 touchdowns as a rookie, catapulting the Lions from a 2-14 and finisher without him in 1979 to a 9-7 finisher with him in 1980. He was even better in his second season, rushing for 1,400 yards and 13 touchdowns. The player strike in 82 slowed Sims and everybody else down, but he still rushed for 639 yards in nine games to power the Lions to their first playoff berth in 12 seasons. He rang up his third 1,000-yard season in 1983 to deliver the Lions their first division title in 26 years. He was well on his way to a fourth 1,000-yard season of his five-year career in 1984 with 687 yards to begin the season's first eight weeks. But he tore up a knee in his eighth game against the Vikings, which ended his season, and tragically, his career. Sims spent two years rehabilitating his knee, but never made it back. He never played again, and a curb Hall of Fame uh, uh, Hall of Famer came off the track. He led Lions in rushing in all five of his seasons and was voted to Pro Bowl each of his first three years. He was a special back. 
if Gold Jackets and Canton Bus are given going to be determined on the basis of a snapshot of a short career, as was the case with Terrell Davis, then Billy Sims deserves a look. With healthy healthy knees, he was a Hall of Fame talent. Okay, Gooseman, short-term Hall of Fame runner. Billy Sims, Terrell Davis, Gail Sayers. Stop it. The Kansas comment, not even close. But let me say this. I would have loved to have seen Billy Sims in that Denver offense and Terrell Davis in that Detroit offense. <laughs> hey, Goose, I got a quick one for you. Billy Sims barbecue or Arthur Bryant's? Arthur Bryant's is the barbecue with Jim Brown at the Russian football. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. That is true. <laughs> hey, Goose, you know what I remember about Billy Sims? Remember that, uh, aside from his uncanny ability to make tackleless miss, remember that afro he had? It's like yeah. Oscar Gamble-worthy. I mean, the guy, you remember it all? God, anyway. Anyway, uh, there's something else I remember, guys. We've got to go to break, like now, so let's go. This is the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Jeez, I almost forgot. Um, we were talking Halloween, turning back the clocks and all that, and um, I almost forgot. Guys, we have the New York Marathon this Sunday. And um, just a hunch here, but I, I'm guessing no one on this program has run the marathon, correct? Goose, Ron? <laughs> you would be wrong. Oh, You, you run? A marathon? Well, some might have looked at it and not connected it with running, but I did complete the Chicago Marathon. Did, did you, you really? I did, did win. Uh, what did was your time? Did, uh, did you, did you make it under four enough. hours or no? Uh, I, I didn't because I, I got a stress fracture in my foot at mile 21, but I decided I was, yeah. was going to finish this thing. But it, uh, uh, yeah, I just wanted to see if I, uh, frankly, I wanted to see if nice. I could, would do the training. You know, and stick with yeah. the training, oh. which which I did, and I was actually doing pretty well. Uh, I'll tell you one really quick funny story, really fast. Uh, I had a friend of mine who knew the executive director of the of, of the Chicago Marathon, so uh, so he let me in, even though I didn't, you know, had no qualifying or anything like that. And not only did he let me in, he put me in the front chute. So I walk in the front chute, and you can see these skinny guys from Kenya. You know, they all know each other. Like guys, 125 right? pounds yeah, They're all looking yeah. at the guys. Who the hell is this guy in there? You can see their minds are going like, this is, is this like a, some ringer from East Germany? You know, he's on the juice or whatever. And then after about, you know, 50 feet, they know, well, don't worry about that guy. But those guys were back in Nairobi by the time I got to the finish line. That was, so was, you weren't the rabbit. No, I was not the rabbit, you know, but it was okay, it was More like the tortoise. Yeah. Um, hey, Goose, man, I. I know you worked in New York for years, and what it was it uh, back in the seventies, late seventies? Yep. Did you ever cover the New York City Marathon? No, I was covering football in the fall, so I wasn't okay. running in marathons, covering them, winning them, nothing. <laughs> well, I, I know some people say listening to us is like running a marathon, but hey, we always finish, right, Ron? Like you, we, we always finish. Um, finish. Ron, you, did you ever cover Boston, Ron? Did you ever cover it as a? Oh, sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. A uh, number of times uh, there was always, you know, that's such a big event here. Yeah, and I actually had huge. the great. Uh, honor of uh, writing the first big story on Uda Pippik, who was the uh, mm-hmm. best-looking yep. marathoner in history, marathoning hottie. But uh, yep. she finished second, and I guess within the little marathon world, people knew her, but nobody else really knew who she was. So it was a, a, you know, it was an interesting story, and she was a very interesting person. Well, I, I know the two are very different, but I, I, I love watching the New York Marathon. I mean, we lived on the Upper East Side for years, as you guys know, and we go over to First Avenue to see the runners coming off the 59th Street Bridge, and, and that was that was great. And then later we went over to Central Park to see them at the 25th mile. And I, I, I mean, Ronnie, and you would know because you've done this. I don't know how they do it. I mean, running 430 and 440 splits for miles for 26 I miles. I mean, it's unbelievable. I know. I can, I can tell you this much. You know, they're not lying when they tell you that the race 
has starts at 20 miles. Because if you've yeah. trained even halfway decently, you know, the first 13, 14 miles is really not that big a deal. I mean, you're not going to be winning a race if you're somebody like uh, like us. But, you know, you feel pretty good, and you've trained well, and you've done a 20-miler. Uh, in, in, in most cases, you've done several. But you get to that 20 first mile and it's like what is going on like every bit of your body is saying exact asking you a question unfortunately i was warned of this but the question is very succinct and very clear why are you doing this to end up where you started this is stupid (laughs) you know and you 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 got to have an answer to that question otherwise you just go find the closest bar and start throwing them down because this yeah that's right going yeah well Wow. You do that afterwards, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I do. Um, well, that night. Um, I, I know to do another segue here, some people say watching the Browns, Cleveland Browns seems like a marathon, especially with all their coaching, GM, and quarterback changes. And I will get to them. We promised you we will. But first, I want to do a PSA for the NFL Network. And, and this is a little bit on the serious side. Uh, they have another of their football life features, which are pretty good. They're doing this Friday. And this one really is close to all of us. It's on Dwight Clark, and it involves his final on-camera interview. Dwight, of course, uh, as you know, passed away this summer from ALS. And these guys will tell you, uh, he was a friend to almost everyone, us, almost everyone, and Goose, probably almost everyone who wasn't in a Dallas Cowboys uniform. Or a Cowboys fan. You know, that yeah. catch shifted the power in the NFC in the 80s from Dallas to San Francisco. Yeah. And you think uh, Everson Walls will be watching Friday Night Goose? Yes, I do. For the same reason yeah. Dennis Eckersley sent Kurt Gibson's birthday was yeah. a week ago. You, you can't run yeah. away from an iconic sporting moment, so you embrace it. Yeah, okay. Well, on to Cleveland, as advertised. Um, you talk about the perfect time and the perfect place for another Halloween Fright Night. God almighty, these guys do it every year. And, yeah, they've done it again. Blowing out not just their head coach, Hugh Jackson, but their offense coordinator, Todd Haley. And, Ron, first of all, um, general question here. You good with these moves? Um, even though you're by, Cleveland's by is two weeks away, you good with them? Well, you know, it makes sense on one level. Uh, uh, on another, not so much. You know, I'm going to get into it a little bit uh, later in the show. But, it's okay. uh, you know, it's usually a waste of time, frankly. Uh, uh, um, you know, at least they were smart enough not to hire outside the building. You end up paying two guys to do one job. And now you're paying one less. Well, you're paying them anyway. But, uh, you know, they got a guy doing a head coaching job and getting paid like a, uh, like a defensive coordinator. So, uh, they at least were smart on that end. But in the end, you know, the, the history of this is not good. Uh, generally, you need an interim coach because you got an interim team. Yeah, <laughs> they're, they're I mean, not good. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean they keep changing coaches, GMs, players, you name it, even owners. I mean, um, Goose. Uh, I, I mean, I'll ask you, you know, about Greg Williams. He's the interim coach. Um, I think we all remember him as the head coach in, in Buffalo. But what exactly can an interim deliver? I mean, you're our historian. You, you know this stuff. Can, can you give us some perspective on interim head coaches? Yeah, the dozens upon dozens upon dozens of interim coaches since the in the game's modern era from 1960 on, only two wound up taking teams to the playoffs, and only 16 managed to win more games than they lost during their interim stints. Mm. The bottom line is bad teams generally stay bad regardless who's coaching them. <laughs> Goose, why do you think that is? Why is it so difficult for interims to, to get it turned around? Oh, it's a bad team. Yeah. You a lot of these guys inheriting teams that are one and seven, two and five, and the players have basically quit on the season. It's it's very difficult to get to get that that mindset turned around when uh when they've just been beaten up, you know, all week after week after week or losing. Yeah. It's got okay. it, it it takes a lot to fire a guy in mid season. He must have lost the team or the team's quit. I mean, there's there's always a reason the guy's gone. Yeah, because if you keep him after two years of winning one game 
and then you fire him before midseason after he won two. He doubled right. his total for the last two years. Wins, you know? I mean, come on. Um, but uh, let's go lastly to a guy who I think was affected the most, and I'll start with you, Goose. That's Baker Mayfield. Um, what does this mean for him? And then secondly, where would you go for your next head coach? I mean, some people have suggested Oklahoma's Lincoln Riley. I don't know if that's going to be the solution, but where would you go for your next head coach? And then first, what does it mean for Mayfield? Well, I think there's a better chance that Browns can get Riley's predecessor Bob Stoops he's out of work maybe looking for a new challenge good coach you know I've, I've always said the top five to ten college coaching jobs are better than any gig in the NFL at schools like Alabama Ohio State Oklahoma you should go nine and three in your worst seasons your worst season in the NFL will get you fired <laughs> indeed it will indeed it will uh well, you know, look, I, you know what I do? I'd beg Bruce Arians to come out and be the quarterback whisperer to Mayfield. Yeah. But yeah. I, I, my guess is he's too smart to do that. Uh, but, you know, you never know. You know how these guys are. They're all kind of addicted to coaching. Um, so if you could get him and he could get the quarterback online, the way North Turner seems to have gotten Cam Newton online, yep. well, yep. that makes up for a lot of sins. Ron, do you think this has any impact on the Browns in terms of pushing them forward? Because they're not that bad, A, and, and B, they've been in numbers of games they could have won. I mean, right. they could they could be much better with that record than they are now. I mean, those overtime games, they could have won those things. They had a yeah. kicker, they could have won them. That's right. They were, he was a little unlucky. You know, that that's the thing. You know, the, you know as they say in, with historical figures, you know, uh, guys who win the wars, they write the stories. You know, Germans had the greatest mm-hmm. war machine ever built, but they lost the war. So Eisenhower's a genius. Uh, you know, those 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 uh, guys uh, make the make two kicks or three kicks, and yeah. they win those two games. They're talking about Hugh Jackson's potential coach of the year because he would have had four wins. Yeah, that's that, right. That's okay. how, how how much it changes. Okay, well, guys, now in keeping with our Halloween theme, I want to ask you the following questions. First. If you were to dress up, oh, let's say Jack Ron, your 12-year-old son, as Cleveland owner Jimmy Haslam, yes, as Jimmy Haslam, how would you do it? In other words, I mean, what would he wear? He's going out Wednesday night. He's Jimmy Haslam. What's he look like? He'd wear a black hood and carry a hangman's noose because the ex- <laughs> be the executioner, and that's when Jimmy Haslam is when it comes to coaching. He's owned the team since the midseason of 2012 and had five coaches in seven years, and the record is 20 and 78. The hangman. <laughs> oh, yeah. I dress him in big floppy shoes with big red nose because it's been a clown show. <laughs> 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 uh, yes. Okay, wait a minute. No, wait a minute. Jack's changed his mind. decided, Goose, he's going to go as Hugh Jackson. So what should he wear now? I dress him as the captain of the Titanic, except he can't <laughs> leave his sinking ship. <laughs> I would I would dress him up uh, as a robber with a mask, mask, mask and a gun because you has been stealing from the Browns since he got yeah. there. I mean, you got to win games, man. You, you can't. And then if, then when he won two, see you later. Yeah, see you later. Sure, hey, a quick question. Quick for, uh, since we're on the subject, both you guys, do you think Hugh Jackson winds up somewhere as an assistant? I mean, going back to Cincinnati, maybe, or someplace. I mean, does he wind oh, up as an assistant somewhere? I would oh, think yeah. so. Without question. I think his head yeah. coaching days are coach, over. Not head coach. Right. Yes, his head coaching days are over, too. Usually he's that way in Cleveland. It's like burial ground. Oh, wait a minute. There's Jack again. Ah, Ron. Surprise, surprise. Changed his mind. This time it says Greg Williams. What's your advice? Oh, this is easy. He's going to dress up like Dr. Christian Barnard, the guy who did the first heart <laughs> transplant, because by the end of the season, this guy's going to need heart surgery. 
<laughs> I would dress him as Chip Diller. You may remember him from the movie Animal House. He was portrayed by Kevin Bacon, and his character was trampled <laughs> in an alley when the marching band decided to take a hard left. <laughs> I do remember that. <laughs> it's great. Uh, oh, wait a minute, Ron. Gotta love these kids because they can't make up their minds. In the end, Jack says, no, he's most comfortable going as a Cleveland Browns fan. Tell me what he should wear following me. Just put a dog face on Jack. That would allow him to hide his identity. <laughs> exactly. It's either that or sad clown mask. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Well, thanks for frightening all of our listeners, guys. And now, speaking of interim head coaches, we have one waiting in the wings. That's former head coach Archell, who's also a successful interim. He's up next. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, a couple minutes ago, we were talking about what's next for Cleveland. And you know something? There's somebody who knows. And that would be Art Shell, who understands the difficulties Greg Williams faces, taking over as the Browns' interim head coach for the rest of the season, mostly because... He faced the same hard road in 1989. Now, that was the season the Hall of Fame tackle replaced Mike Shanahan with the Los Angeles Raiders, who were struggling at 1-3. and three. Now, they hadn't had a winning season in four years, and the team was in, well, frankly, rebellion in Mike Shanahan's methods. But Art settled the ship, becoming one of the few interim coaches to produce both short- and long-term coaching success. The first African-American head coach in the NFL since Fritz Pollard in 1925. Art went 7-5 that season, and a year later... You know what? He led the Raiders to a 12-4 and record in the AFC title game. In six years as Raiders head coach, he was 54-38 and and led three of the five teams he coached in complete seasons to the playoffs. But the man who hired him, that would be Al Davis, fired him after the Raiders went 9-7 and in 1994. And Oakland didn't have a winning record again for six years. With Al Davis later saying that firing was one of the biggest mistakes of his life. Well, we make no such mistakes here. We brought Art Shell back to the Talk of Fame Network today to talk about what Greg Williams is facing today. And Art, thanks so much for rejoining us. No problem. Thank you for having me. Uh, Art, I believe, if I remember right, you were watching Nightline when Al Davis called to tell you he was thinking about <laughs> naming you as Shanahan's replacement. Then I think he told you to uh, think about it and get some sleep. So how much sleep yeah. did you get? Did you get a lot of sleep that night? <laughs> uh, no sleep at all. <laughs> so, so as we got through talking, I, said, I told my wife, I said, he just said, get some sleep and uh, we'll talk about it tomorrow. Hell, I can't do that. <laughs> so I just, I just went to work right away, um, thinking about what I was going to say to the players. And then started um, coming up with practice plans, how we were going to practice and how we were going to approach the game. Uh, the next day, uh, you became not only the head coach of a one and three team, but the first uh, African American head coach in sixty five years since Fritz Pollard, as uh, Clark mentioned. Uh, how much did that weigh on your mind? I mean, obviously you're worried about the team and winning games, but how much did the sort of historical part of it weigh on your mind? Well, the historical part, uh, it was big, but it wasn't as big as you might think because uh, I knew the owner of the team and I knew the organization. And I knew that um, if you work hard and prepared, um, opportunities will present themselves with the radio organization. That's the way Al Davis was. I mean, uh, he said to me, well, the day of the press conference, he said, and look, you need to understand, I guess some people say you hire him because he was black. He said, I'm not hiring you because you're black. I'm hiring you because you're a Raider and you know this organization. So uh, there was no problem. It was, it was huge. It became huge to me after the press conference when I had a, a meeting with the staff. 
I um, explained to them. I, didn't, I knew all of them, but I explained to them what, what I was looking for and what we needed to do in order to get better, make the team better. And um, I remember saying, you know, and I knew that there were some guys that might not want to be involved with the black head coach. You know, that crossed my mind. All these things crossed my mind, so I just said in staff meeting, I said, look, anybody that has a problem with working for a black coach, working for me, um, you know where the office is, come sit down, we'll talk, and then if you want to leave, then I will we'll make that happen. Uh, so that was important for me to do that. And then I remember sitting down with um, Terry Rubisky, who was talking about the next day's plan and what, what, what I wanted to do. And I said to Terry, I said, what we have to do here, we have to be successful. I need to be successful not only for the Raiders, but for upcoming coaches that are minorities. And if I can have some semblance of success, then that should open the door a little bit wider for others to be hired in the same position that I am, that I'm in. So that's how it all got started. And then the next day, of course, um, now I got to meet with the players. A lot of the players I already knew, of course, and I knew a lot of them well. And I talked to them about the practice plan, how some things are going to change at that point in time. You know, they were... When I was playing, you know, players sat on the helmets. But when Mike was the head coach, you couldn't sit on your helmet. So all these things kind of rankled the ranks. It was a small thing. Uh, maybe it was big for Mike, but it wasn't big for me because I'd been through it. And so, oh, they cheered when I said that because uh, most of them, a lot of them had been there. And and then I, I talked to them about what I was expecting of them and what they can expect from me. I say being on time for things is very, very important to me, and I and I stress that. I said, if I'm in the meeting room five minutes before time, and you come in, then you're late. And they looked at me. I said, that's just the way it is. I said, when I was a player, I never recall being in the meeting room no later than 15 minutes before time to meet. Mm-hmm. That's just the way it was. I, I wanted to be there on time and prepared to go to work, and I expect you guys to do the same thing. And then I told them, I kind of talked about the history of the Raiders, how we got to where we were, the time put in by the players before me, how hard we worked to create a winning situation here with the organization under Al Davis and John Madden, Tom Flores, you know, all great, all great guys, all great coaches. But all, the one thing was important. They were all Raiders. They were the Raider family. And I talked about past players. I remember talking about Jack Tatum, uh, George Atkinson. I said, we used to have a defensive backfield. We call it Soul Patrol. <laughs> they were like little, little, little mini, mini mouse. <laughs> Creating all kinds of problems. Always getting after the big guys. Always chasing. So they'd chase one of our running backs during practice, and then uh, Clarence Davis would say, hey, man, they're getting after me. So then the next play, on a running play, we're down the field trying to chase them. They're running all over the field, off the field, so we wouldn't catch them. So those little things. And, 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 and about winning, what it took to win. I remember telling them about playing in the Super Bowl, what it was like 
finally getting there and how you want to do it all over again. You want to be in that dog on the biggest game in professional football. So any coach that's going into a situation like Greg, he already knows a lot of the players, especially on the defensive side of the ball. And he has an idea of, I hope he does, of what to do and how to go about doing it, how to post strings here and there. I told Howie Long, I pulled him aside and said, look here, there are times I'm going to ride your butt like you don't know what. I said, if you make a mistake, and you might not make a mistake, I'm going to chew you out anyway. Because he was the, he was the, he was the, the light, you know, the shining light up top. Sure. And guys respected him. So I, did, I said, you need to understand it. I'm going to get in you, even when you don't do anything wrong. There are times I'm going to jump your behind and practice. And, I, and, and he understood where I was coming from. <laughs> so it's not a hard job. It is not an easy job. You just got to go on there with a plan. And you got to let, let the players know where you stand and how you're going to approach each situation, each game. Your office is always open for a player to come and talk. If you've got a problem, come and talk to me. Don't let nothing fester. Let's talk about it. Let's see can we resolve it. If we can't resolve it, then we'll come up with an answer some kind of way so it'll work for both sides. I'm here to win. I want to win. You want to win. So let all, let's all get on the same page. And I, I told them what we were going to do in practice. They were excited about that. And every day I came in for the first week, they wanted a couple of players. Hey, tell us some more Raider stories. <laughs> you know, I remember Marcus Allen vividly. said, man, I, you started talking about those things. I got fired up and was ready to play that right then and there. You know, <laughs> so that meant a lot to me because there was a lot of good history there. And they needed to understand about the people that came before them and how hard they had to work to get to the points in their life where they were successful playing the game of professional football with the Raiders. So, and uh, the mystique about the Raiders, I said, there's no mystique. It's about winning. It's about being tough and physical. Penalties, we're going to get some. Sometimes we kind of push the rubber band a little bit, but we're always going to play up to where we can play, to the edge. Now you're going to go up there, and we're going to play hard, tough, physical football. Let's try not to go over that line. So it was a good, it was a good experience for me, and it was a good experience for the players I had the year. We had a, and we had a, we had a chance to make the playoffs in the last, up to the last game against Seattle, and um, Berline just threw, threw the pass in the end zone a little too high. Else he catched that ball, Mervin uh, catched that ball, and we're going into the playoffs. So we had a good run. It just didn't work out for us. <laughs> Now, you mentioned, Art, that, that you had a, a problem uh, or, or, or an issue you had to deal with with other coaches that obviously Greg Williams isn't going to have to deal with, it, and hopefully, fortunately, no one anymore has to deal with that issue of whether an assistant coach wants to work for a blackhead coach or not. But there is clearly some fractures in the Cleveland organization from, from, what, we're, from what we're hearing, you know, splits between Hugh and, and uh, uh, Todd Haley and, you know, spies on all sides and... Right. Surely there's going to be guys loyal to Hugh, and there'll be guys maybe not uh, in love with Greg. So right. how, do, how does he approach that when he, when he goes into that first staff meeting with these uh, guys? He has, to, he, has to, he has to put it on the table. Hmm. He has to put it on the table, and he has to explain to them where he, where he wants to be and where he's headed. I know some of you may not like the idea that I'm the head coach, 
but management had decided that I'm the guy. And if you're going to work, I'm going to work with you, but I need you to work with me and also work for one goal, and that is to make this football team better. And that's why when, when I had my first meeting, I said, if there's anybody in this room that don't like what's going on, my office is down, is down, is down the hallway. We'll talk and we get you out of here. Okay. But we're all going to be on the same page because we're going for one goal, and that is to turn this thing around and get this team winning. And he has to approach that. He has to bring that out on the table at the beginning. You can't let it fester. you got to be blunt. You got to use some colorful language. You got to do that, <laughs> but you got to put it out there because if you don't, it's going to fester. And then you, as the head coach, got to watch every single situation. You got to pay attention to what's going on with your staff and make sure they're doing what you want to do. Mm-hmm. You know, like uh, I remember, um, it was one or two coaches. That did not like some of the things we were doing on the football field. You know, with play, play, you know, play. You know, they all got ideas about plays. Sure. But and they would go, they would go complain to Terry Rubisky. Sure. So <laughs> Terry said, "Hey, uh, big guy, uh, so and so. You know, they they kind of they kind of don't like what we're doing here and there." I said, "Well, you know what, Terry? Tell him to come see me." I'm in the office down there. He said, well, I told him that. I told him, hey, that big black son of a bitch is down there in his office. You go ahead and see him. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Don't come to me. Go see him. <laughs> and he was right. You've got a problem. You come come talk. Let's talk. And we can iron it out. I'm gonna, either I'm going to agree with you or I'm going to disagree with you. But I'm, at that time, I was, I was willing to accommodate but not accommodate to the point where I get away from the principle and and the roadmap that I wanted to take him down. Mm-hmm. Hey, Art, we're out of time, but I want to thank you so much for being our interim guest this week. We really, <laughs> really enjoyed it. Thank you. Hey, was thanks great, for having me, guys. You guys take care of yourself now. Thanks, Art. appreciate it. Thanks, Art. That was former Raiders star player and star coach Art Shell. Up next, the two-minute drill. You'll listen to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, we're near the end of our first half, so Shay, because it seems as everyone these days is a whistleblower, can you find us one? That's the two-minute warning. Perfect. That means we're on to the two-minute drill, and I have the questions this week, so let's get started. Is The Old Man and the Gun a movie about A, a serial robber, B, Tom Brady, C, Drew Brees, or D, Ron Borges? None of the above. It's Daniel Craig. (laughs) None of the above. E, Whitey Bulger, an old gangster who lived by the gun and (laughs) died in prison by the sword this week. Moving once again, guys born round, don't die square. He did indeed. Who's the worst team in the NFL? The Raiders, the 49ers, the Giants, or Jimmy Haslam and any head coach? The Raiders. They were bad to start and then traded away the two best players in offense and defense. I would say the Raiders, but then I see somebody else and I say it's them. So whichever one of these sad sacks you saw last. (laughs) Who took down Hugh Jackson? His kickers, former official Hugo Cruz, Todd Haley, or Hugh Jackson? The ghost of Bill Belichick continues to haunt that building. Unbelievable. We agree on something. You're right. Ever since he gave Bernie Kozar the boot, it's been dog pound all the time. Quit look over his shoulder there, Ronnie. Complete this sentence. The next head coach to be fired is... Jason Garrett. Showing up at the World Series was a very bad look for a guy with an underachieving team and a new receiver. 
<laughs> Beats me, but I know who it ought to be. John Gruden, get him out of there. <laughs> Daryl Owens will receive his Hall of Fame ring Sunday at the 49ers game. Why would he show up there and not in Canton? Like the rest of the football world, San Francisco's Hall of Fame voter Matt Mayoko didn't respect him. <laughs> That's easy, Clark. You know the guy. Free party. Yeah, exactly. Megan Kelly, Leroy Kelly, Jim Kelly, or Gene Kelly? Bob Battleship Kelly. <laughs> Kelly Kelly. That girl could wrestle me to the ground anytime. <laughs> Cleveland owner Jimmy Haslam says the Browns are in a better place than they were yesterday. So where were they yesterday? A day closer to the end of the season. <laughs> I would assume they had to have been on a layover in Buffalo. What are the chances that for the next, his next act, Fitzmagic can make Jameis Winston disappear? Not sure about Winston, but Fitzmagic could make Dirk Cutter reappear in 2019. If he gets time to load the Amish rival, Fitzmagic will make the big sombrero reappear. That's the end of the that's the end of our first hour, but don't go away. We have former Colts star Robert Mathis and Hall of Fame voter Ira Kaufman from Tampa coming up in hour number two. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. And online at SBNationLive.com. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Welcome back to our number two of the Talk of Fame Network. I'm Clark, along with Rick and Ron. And there are no tricks here today, just treats. With former defensive lineman Robert Mathis and Hall of Fame voter Ira Kaufman from Tampa coming up in this hour. But first, guys, I often reserve this spot for the passing of significant NFLers. And there were two from the same team that left us in the past week and a half. And, and one's Dick Modulesky, who I know you talked about last week. And the other's Lyndon Crow. And, and both members of the New York Giants, and both part of the greatest game ever played. You only need to remember two names, John Unitas and Alan the Horse Amici. <laughs> but Raymond Barry. <laughs> Love Raymond Barry. Well, as you know, Ron, I mean, speaking of Raymond Barry, I have a 14 by 20 black and white photo in my office of that John Unitas that uh, Goose was referring to, throwing downfield in that particular game, the 58 championship game. And the guy opposite him is Little Mo, uh, Dick Modulesky. But what I want to know from both of you is this. That game is billed as the greatest game ever played. But Ron, was it? Well, in terms of its uh, significance to the growth of the league, yes. The fact it bled into what in those days was uh, was considered prime time, which meant into the Ed Sullivan show on Sunday night, which something like 72% of Americans, it might even been higher, uh, watched. That yeah. meant the many fans who had it never paid pro football any any heat at all. Got to see this dramatic finish in black and white, long shadows at Yankee Stadium and all that, sudden death. Uh, and the fact that there are 17 future Hall of Famers also makes it great, of course. However, as a football game, how great can it be when the two teams commit seven turnovers and fumble eight times? Not so great. Yeah, but the national TV exposure made the NFL a national game in a national sport that day. No game since then has carried the same weight or that impact on an audience. Yeah, I, I agree with you, Goose. But how about I mean, like, how about Super Bowl Fifty One? And I'm just talking about you know championship games where the Patriots came back from twenty five down in the second half. I'd put the Giants beating the eighteen and zero Patriots in the two thousand eight Super Bowl ahead of that one because of the magnitude of the upset and the fourth quarter drama. Bill Belichick's best team lost. Here's what I say, Claude. Let's go to a break. Get off Tom Brady! <laughs> take yeah, I'll take any game with the United States. Brady's the best ever. But we're going to stop right there. When we return, we're going to the polls for a pre-election debate. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. 
This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, we've got a lot going on this week. We've got Halloween, daylight savings, the Red Sox parade, Dartmouth, Princeton, and of course, a significant anniversary of the last invasion of American soil. Anyone got an idea what that was? Ron? Sure. The British invasion when Herman's hermits followed the Beatles and the Stones. <laughs> oh, no. Goose? I'm curious. Dartmouth, Princeton, what? Debate? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Chess club. Undefeated, baby. <laughs> Unde- <laughs> both undefeated. Undefeated. And anyway, what? hey. In what? <laughs> In football. Dartmouth's ranked, by the way, guys. Um, yes, well, they anyway. Are. <laughs> they are ranked. <laughs> 24th in the country. I love it. Uh, nice try, guys. But no, Tuesday, it was the 80th anniversary of a Martian. Yes, a Martian invasion near Grover's Mill, New Jersey, an attack on New York City with poison gas, and then, yes, and then the fall of the United States and the world to aliens. Happened on October 30th, 1938, and of course, Ron, you were probably there. It was a hoax perpetuated by a radio broadcast directed and narrated by actor Orson Welles, the famous War of the Worlds broadcast. But it was so convincing that reportedly people in New York ran out of their apartment building looking in the sky. <laughs> I think that's what today we call fake news. That's right. As hoaxes go, I think it ranks right up there with the looming Mexican invasion of little old <laughs> ladies from Honduras walking a thousand freaking miles with tire shoes. <laughs> Well, I guess nothing's changed in those 80 years, Goose, because you know what? I was down in New York City. People still run out of their apartment buildings looking to the sky and finding nothing. But that's because Eli just been sacked again. <laughs> Seven sacks by Washington, six by Dallas, four apiece by Atlanta, oh, Houston, oh. Philadelphia. Manning is becoming the Chuck Weppner of quarterbacks. <laughs> oh, oh, that's good. Yeah, 31 sacks for the year. <laughs> well, in recognizing Orson Welles and the Red Sox and Halloween, um, we almost forgot to mention the next Tuesday. It's Tuesday, and over six is midterm election day. So get out there and vote in recognition of that. We want to stage a last minute. Right? <laughs> That's right. We want to. We're going to stage a last minute debate here between our Hall of Fame historians to help you make up your minds on hotly contested topics. Now, Ronnie Goose, you know the ground rules here. You've been through this many times before, so I'm not going to go over them with you. Essentially, one will make a point, the other will challenge, and then if you want, there's a wrap up. If you don't, we'll get on to the next one. So let's get going. Goose, you're first up. I mentioned Eli Manning. If you were Pat Shermer, first of all, my condolences. Second of all, what do you do with Eli? I'd let him play the next six games, then put rookie Kyle Luetta on the field for the final two games. If you thought uh, he was your quarterback of the future, you wouldn't have waited until the fourth round to take him. But you still need to see what you've got in him, see if he can be your backup going forward. That Eli retires the giant, G-Men get a top two or three pick in a 2019 draft and find the next quarterback there. Well, Clark, to stick with your election theme, I would vote to impeach him. He has zero chance of success. <laughs> really, with the bums that are, they've surrounded him with, he got no chance. He got a line who can't block, a defense that can't hold, and a set of receivers who can't catch. They spend more time at the hairdresser than they do in the end zone. Give the guy you a got, break. You got the votes to impeach him, Ron? <laughs> I do have the votes to impeach him. They're all sitting in Section 112 there at MetLife State. Shay, sounds like we need to cue the music. Eli's going. Okay, Ron, you're next. Yes. If you were commissioner, what one rule change change would you make? I would change this rule, and I think even my 
my my sainted friend Gooseman will like this. I would change the replay rule. You can still use replay to adjudicate every call if you would like. But we will add just one twist. If a coach throws out the beanbag to get the video replay disputing a call and making Goose's hair stand up on fire, and he loses his argument, he does not lose a timeout. He has to forfeit a week's pay. That'll cut right down on those replays. <laughs> I like it. Ron, as, as much as I like that suggestion, I think I've got one better. <laughs> oh, let's I, hear it. I would restore the bump and run. Ooh. If you aren't going to make the quarterback sweat, at least make the receiver sweat a little. Make them work for what they get. This I like it. Absurd with all these passing yards. Put that bump and run in. I think that would slow things down. Ooh, yeah. Well, Willie Brown grabs you and chucks you right Willie out of Brown bounds. <laughs> Willie's coming back. Willie would come back. <laughs> <laughs> he would come back. Goose, it might only not shut down, but might shut up some of these receivers, too. <laughs> Okay, Gooseman, you're next up. Been a lot of criticism of the Monday night football telecast and crew. How would you fix it? I would remove one mic, either that of Jason Witten or that of Booker McFarlane. You make Witten your color guy and let him learn how to be an analyst on the job, or you make McFarlane your color guy. He has more experience in the broadcast world than Witten and is certainly more comfortable expressing his opinions. But as the third wheel, the guy not in the booth, should he should be invited into the conversation. Right now, Booger is inserting his opinions any and every time he feels like talking. He's acting like the analyst and the play-by-play guy, and he's riding that oversized golf cart on the sideline. I think the ESPN fumbled the ball by not clearly defining the roles for this crew. But clearly, there's one Mike too many in that crew. <laughs> there is, and it belongs to Joe Tessitore. This, yeah. guy, oh. this, this, oh. is, this guy talks and acts like he just got his first kiss, and he thinks he's actually in love. It's unbelievable. Wraps <laughs> <laughs> it. He goes on and on and on, and everything is the greatest. And everybody's a Hall of Famer, and everybody's great, and Witten's great, and he's a Booger's a genius. I'm like, shut up. Please, I'm begging you, take the mic away from Joe Tessitore. Make this one quick. Last one for you, Ron. Believe the unbeaten Rams may not be the best team in the NFC. Yeah, not. And also believe they lose this weekend to the team that may be, and that's New Orleans. Tell me why I'm wrong. <laughs> because you're out of your mind, as usual. Yeah, yeah, I know. You always tell me why I'm wrong. Rams are the most balanced team in football. Uh, they rank second in total yards, third in points scored, eighth in yards allowed, and sixth in points allowed. New Orleans is a beast on offense. And, and they have a dog on defense. They're 23rd in the league in both yards allowed and points allowed. Drew Brees may keep them close, but the Rams will destroy that defense. Let me get in here. I'm not listening to either one of you guys. I read the Friday GPS on our Talk of Fame Network site. I see Clark Judge 3-5 and in his best bets. Ron Borges 2-6. Save your talk, guys. Save That's your right. talk. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's... There's no debate who's next. It would be our Ron Borges with his Borges and Bogus segment. Ron, the floor is yours. (laughs) Hope you do better with this than you do with your picks. (laughs) Yeah, me too. Uh, Believe it or not, there's two ways to look at the firing of our friend Hugh Jackson in Cleveland. Uh, When you go 336-1 and in two and a half years as a head coach, it's hard to call your tenure anything but bogus. Uh, And when your overall record as an NFL head coach ranks only one step above the legendary NFL commissioner, but not so legendary. Head coach Burt Bell, who went 10 46 and 2 uh, for a 179 winning percentage, if you want to call that a winning percentage, between 36 and 1941. What can you say? Hugh Jackson's overall head coaching record is 11 44 and 1. That's a winning percentage of 205. Considering that, well, uh, bogus seems appropriate. 
But it's just as bogus to think switching to an interim coach is going to make a difference in your team's short-term fortunes. Certainly, there have been some interim success stories, the most notable being Wally Lem. Lem took over the struggling 1-3-1 Houston Oilers in 1961, won nine straight, scored 513 points, and won the AFL championship. However, it should be pointed out that they were the defending champions from the inaugural season. So I think the problem was Lou Ripka's, not the players. Uh, other notables are our, our friend Art Schell, who took a 1-3 and Raider team, went 7-5, and went seven and five, and the next year was 12-4. and four. Don Coriel, who inherited a 1-3 and three Charger team in 1978, and went 8-4 after Tommy Prothrow resigned. And, of course, guy people forget, Bruce Coslett, who in 1996 went 7-2 as interim coach of the Bengals after replacing David Shula. But in general, the new guy turns out to be as bogus as the old guy. According to my count, which I may have messed up because, you know, I can't add, starting with when Walt Kiesling replaced Johnny Blood as head coach of the Pittsburgh Pirates in 1939 and finished 1-6-1 after Blood started off 0-3, there have been 51 interim head coaches in the NFL. They have posted an aggregate record of 149-229-5, a losing winning percentage of 374. Jackson may have ranked below the expected norm of all-time coaches by a wide margin, but he wasn't that far off what the Browns can expect from Greg Williams over the second half of this season. Might Williams become the next Lem? Not likely. History tells us he's the next on the Lamb. He'll be out of here for, in a hurry. Look, when you look at a 336-1 record in Cleveland, the only thing you can say is bogus. But if anyone in the dog pound thinks the move to Greg Williams is the solution, NFL history has a word for you, too. Double bogus. That's two words. <laughs> I got a word for you. Break. That's what we're going to take, all right, guys, right now. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, every week, as you should know by now, we're joined by a Hall of Fame voter, or, or former Hall of Fame voter, to get his take on the player, coach, GM, or owner, you name it, from his team that most deserves to be in Canton. And this week, we have our longtime friend, Hall of Fame voter, Ira Kaufman, from Tampa and JoeBucksFan.com to tell us which Tampa Bay Buck most belongs in Canton. And Ira, I want to start by laying down the ground rules. You cannot, repeat, cannot include Ryan Fitzmagic in this list, okay? Got it? <laughs> Got it, baby. Got it. <laughs> okay, as long as we understand each other. <laughs> Let's take it from the top. <laughs> You've got two Bucks, both defensive backs, who made the semifinals last year. One, of course, is cornerback Ronnie Barber. The other is safety John Lynch. With John, as you know, because you're the guy who stands up for him in the meetings, a finalist the past five years and a top ten finalist for two of them. So in your opinion, which of these two is the most deserving of induction first? Well, you start with Jameis Winston, gentlemen. That, that's where the conversation starts. Uh, now, 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 between Lynch and Barber, look, I'm prejudiced. I, I've made the case for Lynch five times. Uh, you don't have to rub it in, Clark. Everybody knows that. You don't have to remind anybody. Uh, I'm going to say John Lynch because I think he was more integral to the success uh, of that defense than Barber. Barber, to me, is more individualistic, very compelling candidate. Um, but Lynch, for the, uh, you know, over a seven-year period, guys, and that's of an eternity by NFL standards, um, 
with rare exception, the Bucks had the best defense in football. You know, you had the Ravens one year. But overall, the Bucks had uh, the reputation for being the best defense in football. And everybody that I talk to and I think that you guys talk to say, you know, you, you need that three-headed monster to make uh, that Tampa two. Uh, you know, look, nothing's new under the sun. The Steelers were doing it, too. Uh, they had me and Joe Green. They had Jack Ham, you know, and and, uh, and they had some damn good safeties. But you, you got to have the safety. Uh, otherwise, it doesn't work. And, you know, my problem again, and it'll be this year if Lynch gets in the room again, will be uh, he doesn't have eye-popping numbers, guys. But right. his intangibles are off the charts, and sometimes that has to matter. Um he was the leader of that secondary. He played a major role in that Super Bowl. He was calling out the plays before uh, Rich Cannon was executing them. And um, the guy was a huge hitter uh, in the day and age, guys, when, when you could be intimidating. So don't judge him by the, the modern rules. Judge him by the time he played in. Well, as I mentioned, our, uh, John was a top 10 finalist for two years, and, and you more than anybody else knows that. Uh, but you also know this year wasn't one of them. Uh, has nothing to do with your presentation. Great presentation. But for some reason, he went backwards. He didn't make the first cut of finalists, unlike the previous two years. <clears throat> I don't need to tell you, that that's not a good direction to go. I mean, is his candidacy running out of steam? And if it is, what do you do to give it momentum again? Well, it is running out of steam, guys. Uh, you know, you can't argue with the facts. And that could be a reflection. Maybe it was a particularly strong class last year with, with uh, Moss and, and Owens uh, taking up two of those spots. Uh, that's possible. Uh, we finally pushed uh, both of them through. Uh, but, you know, I'm sure that Ron's going to remind me uh, that you've got strong candidates that are returning, like Ty Law, Isaac Bruce, all those offensive linemen. And, guys, uh, possibly three first-timers. Now, I, I can see Goslin cringing in the corner there. I, I can see it. I can feel it. Um, possibly, guys, probably. So, so, uh, yeah, the facts are the facts. Uh, there's, there's no way in, in, in the world Reed and Gonzalez aren't sailing in. There's no way. And, mm-hmm. you know, Bailey, you say what you want, but he, he made 12 Pro Bowls, and you can't dismiss that. Um, guys, do we want 12 guys fighting for two spots? I mean, 12, uh, 12 returning guys, that, that's difficult. So, right. yeah, I mean, you know, I got to give, I'm honest with John Lynch. Uh, he's an honest guy. Um, he's been very classy throughout this thing. I, I volunteered to have uh, Goslin do the presentation instead of me. He shot that down. He said anybody but Goslin, uh, but I'm open <laughs> to the suggestion. Uh, <laughs> but, um, guys, the, num- the numbers aren't going to change, and I've been trying to stress intangibles. And you know what, guys? Intangibles don't work in that room. I've discovered right. that. Well, I've discovered sometimes tangibles don't even work in that room, but then we move on. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> another story for another day. <laughs> uh, uh, okay, let's move on to the next best guy, and I will preface uh, my statement here, Ira, by, by saying I'm I'm biased toward the guy. I think the guy was a tremendous player. I, I, I'm pretty sure what you're going to say back. Um, but Hugh Green... Uh, for a period of time, was as good uh, at what he did as anybody in football. Did he just not do it long enough because of the the injuries that he suffered? Boy, Ron, Ron, did he play? Did he play oh. on some bad Buck teams, Ron? I mean, they, they were awful. He was absolutely great. awful. Now God, that guy was great um, every day. Now I, I got the guys. I, I got the tamper in '85. Uh, you know, John McKay had just retired. Leroy Selman had just retired. Never covered Leroy Selman in a regular season game. Uh, I, oh, that was very disappointing because I hear he's yeah. even better than we think he, he was. But uh, So here come the 85 bucks, 2-14. and 14. 
86, 2 and 14. Thank you, Lehman Bennett. Thank you. And, um, and, and you, Green, had no help. Now, he's also one of the greatest college players of all time. I mean, of all time. Yeah. Um, might have been a better yeah. college player than Lawrence Taylor. I, I don't think that's a stretch. Um, but, you know, he's not going to get he's not going to get a sniff, Ron. And it's a shame he didn't do it long enough. Injuries, low-profile teams. Um, I remember I was interviewing him once, and I think I wrote the story where he said, I, all I want to do is get out of Tampa. And uh, he was traded a week later. Um, they traded like three veteran players in one day. They dismantled the team. Green was one of them. And... Um, He's a strong player, but, um, you know, Clark, when I look at the other couple of Buck nominees, uh, Hugh Green doesn't come to my mind, uh, but who does is, is Rondé Barber uh, and Simeon Rice. Um, I think Barber's ahead of Rice, and I got it, guys, I got to tell you, honestly, I was a little shocked that Barber didn't get in the room his first year, just in the room, um, yeah. because he's got a compelling case. He's sort of the anti-Lynch. He's a numbers freak. Um, very unique player, durability incredible, and um, and did a lot of great things for the Bucks and 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 in the biggest game in Buck history up to that time, which was the NFC title game in Philly, he he was the best player on the field that day. Yeah, he had a monster game. Yeah, well, I'll tell you this: we ran a poll on this subject on the best Buck not in Canton last week, and and Rondé Barber won it. It was a photo finish between him and John Lynch, but Rondé Barber, <clears throat> excuse me, won it. And I'm wondering if he does get in the room this year, which he might. You're going to be facing, let's say, Barber versus Law, or Barber versus Law, and or Champ Bailey. Where do you go? Yes, you go with uniqueness. Uh, I hate to I hate to tip my hand, gentlemen, uh, because you you three guys are the key swing votes in that room. Uh, and uh, Ron, I, I can just see Ron bracing and telling me he's a system corner goose. I don't want to hear it, gorgeous. I don't want to hear it. Uh, and I can tell you this: Buck fans, Buck fans don't want to hear it either. They think that's a really weak argument to make. If you say the guy's not a Hall of Fame player, that's one thing. But to say a guy's a system player, they want to throw Joe Montana in, in your face. So, guys, you know. He was asked to do a job. He played outside for the most part. Then he played the slot. He might have been the best slot corner of his time. Um, and he was a tremendous tackler. Uh, Rondé Barber was a fabulous player. And I think even uh, Mr. Goslin would admit, the more you look into Rondé Barber, the more you realize that this guy's a heck of a candidate. The more you look at the Rondé Barber, the more you realize the only time he played man-to-man was when he's standing next to his brother playing basketball. But that's all right. We won't hold that against him. It's okay. It's okay. Why do I go on this show and take a few? It's all right. Spoken spoken by the guy who's presenting Ty Law. Yeah, you know, a guy can be just kind of like a zone guy sucking his thumb. That's fine. It's all right. By the way, if the defense was so simple to beat, how come – how come teams average 17 points against them over over like a seven year period? 17 points, um, not 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 22, 17. Uh, that was the mantra. That was the mantra from Sapp, Brooks, Barber, Lynch, Rice to the offense. Hey, uh, hey, hey, Sean King, give me 17 points. We'll take care of the rest. Yeah, right, and, right. Um, and and it worked pretty well because they had they had players like that. Um, now, Simeon Rice ain't chopped liver either, gentlemen. Um, 122 sacks, 20th on the all-time list. Uh, could have been the MVP of that Super Bowl very easily. And uh, I think he's got seven sacks in seven postseason games. Um, one of the great pure pass rushers of his time. I'm not saying he was an all-around defensive end. Uh, not great against the run. But uh, what he did, he did about as well as anybody uh, among his peers. 
What about a uh, name? I'm going to drag a name out here that never gets mentioned. Um, what about Paul Gruber? That guy was uh, one of the He's best good. offensive linemen of his era. He was as good as anybody. Yeah. But yeah. you never hear You know, Ron, Ron, I'm not sure he ever made a Pro Bowl. I mean, it's I don't shocking. think he did. It's shocking. Um, you know, you're right. Very, very durable. Uh, played for a lot of terrible Buck teams. Never complained. Never missed a game. Um, you know, played left tackle and played it very, very well. But, Ron, again, a guy with a team that's, you know, never on television, um, usually 5-11, and 11, couldn't sniff the playoffs. Uh, those guys uh, usually get bypassed. Um, and uh, no Pro Bowls. So, you're right. Heck of a player. He's in the ring of honor. Yeah, he is in the ring point. of honor. Yeah. Um, First one. First and uh, one. I dare... I dare say, board just that uh, you, you Green's not getting in the Ring of Honor. Not not happening. Not really? Happening. Yeah. Wow. Sorry, Ron. Not even in the Ring of Honor. Wow. Not even in the Ring of Honor. Maybe the Pit. Maybe the Pit Ring of Honor. But he's not making the Bucks <laughs> Ring of Honor. <laughs> I'm sure he's in the Pit Ring of Honor. Hey, Ira, thanks you know, so much. Hey, You're guys, in. Guys, what? Guys, there's one. There's one name that comes up, and uh, you know, I don't want to quick, quick, quick. In, in quick. We're almost out of time. Uh, quick. Um, Buck fans are so spoiled. They they want to know about Mike Allstott. They want to know about Mike Allstott because, uh, you know, the, the guy was a pretty darn good fullback. But, um, guys, there's not, there aren't going to be any more fullbacks going in, right? No. Not happening. Yeah. All right. I'll, I'll end this really quick. They want to know about Allstott. Tell them I said not getting in. Yeah. Right. <laughs> too bad. Hey, Ira, we got, pleasure, we got to go. You're in our ring of honor, Ira. Thanks very much. My pleasure, guys. Thanks. See you, Ira. That was Hall of Fame voter Ira Kaufman. Up next, it's former Colts defensive lineman Robert Mathis. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, our next guest was one of the best pure pass rushers of his era, and that's Mr. Robert Mathis, who had 123 career sacks in his 13 seasons with the Indy Colts, including 19 and a half when he led the league in 2013 and went to five Pro Bowls. And 10 more sacks in 2006 when the Colts won the Super Bowl, which isn't too bad for a player who wasn't invited to the NFL Combine, became a modest fifth-round draft pick, and didn't even start for the Colts until his third season. Robert retired after the 2016 season and will become eligible for the Hall of Fame in 2022. And today, he's with us. Robert, thanks for joining us. And I really appreciate you guys having me. Quite an you honor. got it. Well, it's an honor to have you on here in your first or final season, I guess, at Alabama A&M. I'm going to go way back there. I'm going to start at Alabama A&M. You set an NCAA Division I AA record. You know what it was, 20 sacks, 10 forced fumbles. You're named the SWAC Defensive Player of the Year. So question, how does a player with that kind of college productivity slip through the cracks of NFL scouting? Well, I would like to think that uh, my, my brother Frenny and I were, were one of the first, I guess, undersized speed guys in the NFL era. You know, under the six foot, uh, under two hundred sixty-five pound type type hybrid guys to play defensive end. So, uh, needless to say, I wasn't on a, a lot of people's radar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You were not, well, you're on a lot of people's quarterbacks after you got to the league. I know that. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you know, my favorite pastime, second quarterbacks. <laughs> uh, well, the, uh, you know, the NFL wants its, its its defensive ends, as you point out, to be those sort of prototypes, you know, 6'4", 265 pounds, and long arms. And, and the fact that you didn't fit that clearly bothered some, some teams. Uh, but I know some project you as an outside linebacker because of your size. Uh, um, 
But there are always exceptions to the rule, and you were one of those exceptions. What made you an exception that allowed you to excel despite the fact you didn't have the kind of classic uh, pass rusher's body they were looking for? Oh, uh, it was always funny because I, I never I, I heard that exception word just all throughout my career, and I never really understood what it meant. Uh, but it's I mean I, I I take it as a compliment, you know, in hindsight because you know it it means you defied a lot of. Uh, assumptions and uh, defy the odds, but as for me, it was just pure. Just, just give me a shot. Look at the film and you and judge it from what I can do, not from what I look like. And uh, the Colts were the only team of the of the thirty two that actually wanted me to play defensive end, put my hand in the ground, and, and go rush the quarterback. Everybody else, it was linebacker, in which I had no clue on how to do that. <laughs> Well, let's go to those Colts, Robert. Um, you went from exceptions to exceptional with Indianapolis. Um, you spent your first three seasons coming off the bench, as you remember, as a pass rush specialist. And, and you set a franchise record just your second year with sacks in six consecutive games. And you had ten and a half on the season. I'm looking at the stat sheet. says you followed that up with eleven and a half in 2005, all off the bench. Um, it seems like, as Ron mentioned, the, the Colts seem to find a role that best fit a player of your size. Was there, I don't know, going back, was there a yearning during those three seasons to become a starter? I mean, did you want to become a starter, or were you content to be the designated pass rusher? Oh, under no circumstance was I complacent or content with being a a backup guy because I felt I could work hard and eventually earn earn my spot in the starting role. But we had uh, Raheem Brock, our left end, and he was doing a hell of a job. And uh, it was just about just doing my job and I used the analogy earning my seat at the table and uh, we had my brother he was in my wedding Dwight Freening he was bringing havoc off the right side and it was just I had to earn I had to earn my stripes just to be in the same room you know with respect wise as he was so I just had to work at court core special teams guy and uh i took my maybe 10 to 15 third down reps during the game but it was just i had to earn it you know now, it, it seemed to me that you were fortunate in that you know tony dungy uh, was a great believer in speed over size on defense you had gary Brackett and bob sanderson yourself and freeney uh none of you really fit the prototypes for those positions how did he impact your career as the head coach of the colts I, I felt I was supposed to be here, you know, divine, divine intervention, if you will, <laughs> because the lessons that he taught me as a man first that I, I use this in teaching my sons, my you know, my wife, my wife, my family, just just be a be a man and be a leader, and then everything's kind of trickled down. The whole domino effect with faith, family, football, you know. In that, in that exact order. It was priorities, and, and he just treated men like men, and if you didn't get the job done, he was just honest enough without yelling <laughs> to tell you you're not, you're killing us, <laughs> the famous Sunday <laughs> words. <laughs> but he was very instrumental in my life and my career. Well, your career overlapped uh, Freeney, of course, uh, the, the other great edge rusher on those teams. Uh, but, you know, he came in as a first-round pick. He went to seven Pro Bowls. He had all those sort of advantages of being a number-one pick. Um, now, you played together for ten seasons, and in four of them, you both had double-figure sacks. Uh, and I think it was in 04, the two of you combined for 27 sacks. So how do you feel that you fed off Freeney and Freeney fed off you? Uh, uh, we kind of joke around a lot, and uh, we say we stole sacks from each other so, because I truly believe Dwight would, he would be – 
nipping that Bruce Bruce Smith's sack record of 200. If uh, I wasn't still in the few, and uh, I'd probably be up there around, you know, with the, the straight hands 140 some if he didn't steal mine. <laughs> but it was all good. I had to take pressure off him. He was getting a lot of extra eyes, extra hands, and just attention on him. And it was my job to. I had to beat those one-on-ones, and if I was getting chipped or you know things of that nature, he had to win, and which he did. And so I felt like we kind of redefined blocking schemes you know, as a duo. And he brought this up at his retirement speech that in the FC South they started just double chipping with uh, max protection, eight eight guys blocking, and so it was just um, we had to, that we, it was an ex- expectation, man, that you had to get to the quarterback, beat the one-on-ones, and I'm watching him as I rush. He'd do a spin move, make O-line and fall to the ground. But at the same time, I had to race him to the quarterback. <laughs> so it was a lot of fun, man. Uh, I was his biggest cheerleader, and he was mine. It was uh, never any jealousy. It was just all fun, great memories. Why did that work out that way for you two guys? Because let's be honest about this. been other teams with uh, – similar sort of situations where there was a lot of jealousy and it didn't work out uh, as well as it should have. Why did it work with you two guys? Like a, it goes right back to, to Coach Dungy and uh, really just, I mean, from the top down, Mr. Ursay, he did a great job of putting his, putting his vision into motion, which was he wanted a, a leader of men, which is Mr. Polian, Bill Polian, a Hall of Fame GM, and he's he sought Coach Dungy, Hall of Fame head coach. Coach Dungy had a vision, and he they brought in, they had Peyton, a surefire first ballot Hall of Fame quarterback to the receipt. I mean, just the way this team was built, it was built around genuine, just, just authentic guys that wanted to win. Good guys that, that love football and that wanted to win. That was the main ingredient, just work, just family, and just, just getting after it, man. And it was done the right way. Hey, Robert, earlier I mentioned that you set an NCAA Division I AA record with those 10 forced fumbles, which you did as a senior in college. But you also set the NFL career mark with 52 forced fumbles. Wow. How did you learn and then master the art of the strip sack? Uh, honestly, it was my idol growing up. In a, um, even in high school, before I even started playing football, I always wanted to play, but I didn't start playing until the 10th grade. And Derek Thomas really just, for, for some reason, he stood out to me. And mm-hmm. I used to watch him growing up, and he did this tomahawk chop. Every time he came with the, uh, I guess, you know, no pun, I guess the you know the Chiefs with the, I don't know, I guess they called it a tomahawk chop. But he did it every time he, he tackled a quarterback. And I just noticed the ball was just bouncing on the ground every time <laughs> he, he body slammed the quarterback. And so I just started mimicking him. So, like, since high school, I just always did that, just kind of just secure the sack and then bring my, 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 my right hand and just try to get the ball, tomahawk the ball from the quarterback. And that was, oh, became habit, actually. <laughs> and so I would say uh, college, they just refined it. And then I got to the the pro pro leagues and uh, John Turing, man, he just, he perfected it. He just, he, he demanded that you just plan your work, work your plan. And this, everything became no history. <laughs> Um, I also I want to jump ahead to the sort of the end of your career because I remember in 2014 you missed that season with a ruptured Achilles, but you returned to play two more years before he retired as a Colt following the 2016 season. In an era of salary caps and free agency, it's really rare to see somebody play 13 seasons with one team. How important was it for you to spend your entire career with the Colts? I'm forever indebted to this, the, the city, the organization, uh, for allowing me to, to stay in one spot, uh, raising my family. 
my, you know, I have five children, you know, wife and children. We're just to be, stay centralized in this you new know, city of Indianapolis. And uh, it was just, I, first off, I had to earn my keep. And uh, second of all, it was just the team believing in me enough to take to take that that leap of faith on me. And I just didn't want to disappoint anybody, especially my family, and which I, my name and the, the team, you know, which is the horseshoe. It was just all about just holding my own and just working and just appreciating the opportunity I was given. Well, you're now a defensive uh, coaching assistant with the Colts, pass rush consultant, naturally enough. Uh, so you certainly uh, uh, understand how the rules have changed the game. You do the tomahawk chop now, and you know, you're surrounded by 15 <laughs> policemen. They take you out in hand. <laughs> right. <laughs> so you, you, you can't teach them the tomahawk chop even if you want to. I guess. Oh, uh, man, so that's how, probably the perfect analogy for that. <laughs> yeah. How, 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 how hard is it to coach uh, these young guys now who want to achieve the same things you did, but really they're – uh, and I don't mean it as a pun, but their hands are, are, are tied uh, compared to how you can play. How do you go about coaching them today uh, when you realize the game is different? Well, I realize in the coaching world, probably the, one of the worst things that you can say to a, a, a player that you're coaching is, I don't know. <laughs> and when they ask me, well, how do what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to tackle and, and uh, approach, uh, tackle and finish? And I literally... Had to say, I don't know. Let me find out, and uh, I'm still trying to find this answer. It's uh, it's pretty tough, but I mean, the rules are the rules, and you just have to work within the rules of the game. But it's definitely different, very, very different. And uh, <laughs> I know all the football gods, namely Deacon Jones, and these types of guys are kind of rolling in their graves right now. <laughs> but uh, you know, just the you know, the brotherhood of pass of, of quarterback haters is just it's just not good right now. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, you know, one th- explain one thing to me as a, as both a guy who sacked a, gaz- a gazillion quarterbacks and now you're coaching guys. Explain to me how I'm supposed to tackle a guy head on and not fall on top of him when we fall down. Very true because I don't know. Because <laughs> yeah, now, you know, in today's NFL, most quarterbacks are bigger than pass rushers, edge guys. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. like how, how can I tackle Cam Newton, uh, Ben Roethlisberger? These guys are 6'5", 265 pounds. I was 6 feet, two, 240 pounds. <laughs> I have to get this guy down the best way I know how. And so if you go in there and you have to think about how I need to tackle this guy when they have a strike zone and five bodyguards and two referees, <laughs> it's, it's pretty tough. So I really feel like pass, the pass rushers, true pass rushers, has become the number one occupation in the NFL. I really stand behind that. <laughs> hey, Robert, thanks so much for the time, and best of luck going forward with your Hall of Fame candidacy and also figuring out those defensive rules. When you figure them out, give us a call, would you please? <laughs> I will, and I'll, I just want to add that uh, sack fumbles are still not an official stat. I just kind of want to throw that out there. <laughs> okay. We'll make it one. We're all in we'll that make room, it so when your name comes up, it's, hey, wait a minute, let me tell you about this guy. <laughs> Thank you guys for having me. Thanks, you Robert. You got it, Robert. Thank you. All right. That was former Indianapolis pass rusher Robert Mathis. Up next, Stu Minute Drill. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, if you're just tuning in, we're the Talk of Fame Network, and this is what we have to say. That's the two minute warning. Yes, sir, it's the two minute drill where I ask Rick and Ron answers, so guys, start answering. Andy Reid thinks nobody's playing running back better than Kareem Hunt. Who wants to introduce him to Todd Gurley? Well, the Chiefs are a throwing team, and Hunt has four receiving touchdowns the last three games. Only one other receiver has done that 
DeAndre Hopkins. I would say the Rams may introduce him to him at Super Bowl 53. Whoa. What's keeping the Giants from starting Kyle Laletta? An offensive line that can't protect any quarterback, much less a rookie quarterback. His practice video. <laughs> How about a chauffeur? <laughs> well, yeah, why wouldn't Eli Manning? Why wouldn't Eli Manning wave his no-trade clause? Because he wants to be a part of it. New York, New York. <laughs> this is easy. Post-traumatic stress disorder. <laughs> hey, Adrian Peterson thinks he can break Emmett Smith's career rushing record. What do you think? He's five 1,000-yard seasons away. I think he needs to catch Frank Gore first. <laughs> right. Bigger game this weekend. Ram Saints or Dartmouth-Princeton? I know Ram Saints is a football game. What game are Dartmouth and Princeton playing? <laughs> Undefeated, baby. Undefeated. Let me help you with that. Ram Saints if you like football. Dartmouth-Princeton if you like powder puff football. <laughs> oh, please. You saw the Major League Baseball playoffs and you saw Manny Machado. Who's his NFL doppelganger? Odell Beckham. I don't speak German, but if you mean his <laughs> evil twin brother, Vontez Perfect. <laughs> Apparently you do speak German. Batmobile, Oldsmobile, or Boogmobile? Hey, hey, it's the Monkey Mobile, and we just... <laughs> <laughs> As Patty Page used to say, there's no mobility like Oldsmobility. <laughs> it's Brady versus Rodgers this weekend. Who do you have? Patriots have the better team. The Packers have the better quarterback. I go with Gooseman. I take the best quarterback. Hello, Aaron. <laughs> Scientists say there's a 50-50 chance of finding life on Mars within three years. So how soon before the NFL moves there? Better chance the owners move the league office there. <laughs> First they have to put life into the Raiders before they move to Vegas and flop. <laughs> Despicable Me 3 is a movie about A, Minions, B, the Raiders, 49ers and Giants, or C, us? D, the Democrats, Republicans, and Libertarians. <laughs> exactly. But I'm going to say B, by a landslide. Stink, stinkier, stinkiest. <laughs> That's the end of the game. We'd like to thank Robert Mathis, Art Shell, and Eric Kaufman for joining us, Shay Raftis for producing us, and you for listening to us. If you'd like to hear this or any of our podcasts, just go to our website, talkoffamenetwork.com, or find us on iTunes or your podcast app. Otherwise, look for us next week at this time and on this station. We'll be here. We hope you will be too.